and welcome to Movie Go Round, the film podcast that rotates between different themes every single week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme, though, is You Did This To Us. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me for You Did This To Us, David Luzader. How are you? <sighs> I I am here. So there is a list of movies that I have actively been avoiding in my life. And You Did This To Us is just systematically going down that list and making me watch these movies. So I'm as good as I can be as somebody who has been in this situation. Like, I just I'm resigned at this point. Wait, had you not seen this movie before? No. Oh, I'm why so sorry. Would I? <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, watching this a second time was so much more infuriating. Uh, Nicole Davis, how are you? I am. I may have made a poor decision. I'm caffeinated rather than inebriated for this episode. <laughs> and typically, I'm usually have you know a glass of wine going. But I felt like I needed to be more on my toes for this. And I hope I'll be balancing you guys out a little bit here for this episode. <laughs> it certainly sounds like that might be the case. There's definitely a rational hate throwing I'm going to get into at some point, but I will try to balance that out. Uh, someone I certainly don't hate, though, and I'm very excited that he is here, uh, is Cole Rolane. He is Yay! from... Yes, yes. We uh, This is a longtime returning guest. I was on the show over two years ago. The Magic Lantern Podcast uh, with Eric Long is the show you are from, Cole. Cole, for new listeners that didn't hear you way back then... Uh, what is your show all about? Give them a short debrief of The Magic Lantern. Okay. Well, first of all, thanks for having me back. It's great to be back with you guys. I always look forward to these discussions with you. The Magic Lantern is our show basically about our own personal film canons, the films we love and the things we love about them. We tend to take that positive editorial stance because we feel like we've only got so much time on this earth. I don't want to spend it talking about movies. I hate <laughs> welcome to the show. <laughs> so we really Sorry, continue. <laughs> <laughs> we, we really zero in on the things that are excited or that we get excited about. And we want to be enthusiastic boosters of, and that covers everything from art house to international to genre films, anything that gets us excited it's fair game for the show. Very cool. Definitely check that out, particularly after this episode, because at least two of us hate this movie. <laughs> so <laughs> get some positivity reinstilled in your life after whatever is going to happen over the next hour. Uh, but we oh, actually, before I announce this week's movie, I'm going to announce next week's movie. So you can follow along if you'd like to be able to. Next week is the start of a new cycle. So it is uh, new to two. Hey, everybody. Nicole jumping in here to let you know that the episode Brett was about to announce for New to Two has already been released uh, due to this being the last of our reshuffled episodes. So next week's episode will start with a New to Two. It will be one of my choosing, and I chose Shane Carruth's second film, Upstream Color. So uh, see if you can find that. Good luck and <laughs> hope you enjoy. See you next week. So this week, though, we watched Mother! Exclamation point, lowercase m. Came out in 2017. 
when a poet and his young wife open their doors to a pair of unexpected house guests, a series of disturbing events turn their idyllic home into a hellish nightmare. Uh, this was a You Did This To Us pick that had been seeded a couple times because we go ahead and put movies in that are in the top two through five, but have not yet won. So this was audience submitted, of course, but it has been in the running the last couple times. It finally took the cake this time. I think there, we all have a fair understanding of why this was chosen for You Did This To Us. I don't. Did any of you also see this in theaters? Because I had the displeasure of doing so. No, I did. Okay, I did not. So, but I think we can all remember at the time, like my first thought when I was writing on our show doc was this movie had a marketing campaign that was word of mouth hatred. Everyone was talking about how bad it was, how much they hated it, how much people were getting up and leaving the movie theater. And the trailers, if you go back and look at them, really are not indicative of the tone or style of the film in any way. And that is what strikes me right off the bat is revisiting it all these years later, four years later just how much I know now, <laughs> how different it was than what we thought it was then. Well, can I quickly tell you my theater story uh, yes, for seeing this movie in the theater? I saw this at the absolutely wonderful Brattle theater in Cambridge. And um, as my fiance and I were approaching the theater, this young woman and her companion were coming out and she was, very sort of puzzledly asking him, was that, was that good? Was that, was that genius? Was that, was that just pretentious? No, it was bullshit. That was pretentious bullshit. And so that a lot of people came out of the movie that way. And I, I wasn't sure what to expect. Uh, I did not expect what I got. But, you know, I'll be honest, I, I still don't know exactly how I feel about this movie. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. But I don't know also if it's as smart as it seems to be trying to be. I'm not sure it's as deep as Aronofsky wanted it to be. This movie, speaking of Aronofsky, he wrote it over a weekend, is my understanding, um, which I think now that I've seen it really shows like a lot of this needs a second pass. And I don't think it got <laughs> that second pass. I think it's just like he wrote it and he was like, great, I'm a genius. Let's go ahead and shoot this thing over a long weekend. Sound good, everyone? Okay. They <laughs> long weekend starring is at, at the time his girlfriend. Um he was dating J Law at the time. It's I, I will say, like, for well, actually backing up a moment, Cole, had you seen this before? I had not. This was my first run at it as well. And I think I I'm similar to David in this regard. I don't know if you guys do this. When a film is a part of the discourse in a specific way, I studiously avoid it. Whether or not I'm excited about it or I think it's going to be terrible, I give it and myself time alone apart so i'm not influenced by the hype i go into it with fewer specific expectations i let that all die down and i especially do this with television shows too the wire mm -hmm. breaking bad i'll let it simmer and then come back to it when i think i won't be as influenced by all that and so i specifically avoided this film just for that reason not because of anything i was necessarily hearing 
or some preconceived idea about how I might respond to it. But yes, this was the first try for me and will be probably the only try. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting to hear. And I think that's a good mindset to go into because, you know, Nicole and I, we saw this in theaters and my, my very quick theater story is that, uh, I went with my with my girlfriend now fiance and she would not rewatch this with me this week. She like just refused. There were a million other things she'd rather be doing than watching this movie. And and to her credit, um this movie made her like and and me too to an extent. I think a lot of people just filled with crippling anxiety. And I I do have to give the movie that because he is trying it's clear very early on that he wants to make you uncomfortable and that this is not one of those movies you're quote unquote meant to enjoy um it has a theme and a message he wants to, to, to hit you with but uh it, it's very just like constantly butt clenching <laughs> it's the best way i can it's the best way i can describe it now you know yeah, I, i've I, described this movie as if you've never had an anxiety attack and you wonder what it feels like this movie will give you a very good idea of how you feel both in your body and your mind when you're having an anxiety attack. At least I've had very similar experiences to the way this movie makes me feel. Right. Um, I mean, it's also very deliberately oppressive because there's no score to the film. There's nothing. There's sound design, but there's no score. And the lack of a score, that quiet, becomes very oppressive as the movie goes on. And, and there's then the all- quiet goes away, and it's even worse. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. When the, I wish the quiet would have returned. I guess it does, but then it just gets worse from there. <laughs> there's also, it's it, it's not just like the, the quietness and lack of score, which definitely play a big part. It's also the pace of the movie, which is at times just breakneck. Like stuff is just happening so quickly that you don't have any time to get your bearings which is sort of the point. I get that it's because everything is happening to to mother uh, and we're supposed to like kind of be with her. She's our point of view character, but it still is just so hard to ever get oriented in this movie because things are going to change minute to minute. There's no time to really grasp on to anything that's happening because it's like, all right, well, he's here and now she's here and now they're here and now he's dead and now they're here and then, then 50 people are here and now everybody's gone. But then 200 people are here and blah, 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 shooting, bang, bam, bam, baby's dead. Blah. I think that about wraps us. I think we're good. Uh, <laughs> and we're done. Shortest episode ever. No. I will say a lot of these adjectives that are being used, oppressive and breakneck and all this stuff, I like all of these things typically. I like films that are harsh and transgressive and that make you specifically very uncomfortable mm-hmm. when those things are well done and they work. I'm often very specifically looking for that kind of experience. Something like Tetsuo the Iron Man, for example. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that film, but I've it is it. meant to turn your brain inside out, basically. And to me, that's super fun. But in this case, it failed to such a degree that I didn't really have any huge reaction to it. I wasn't really offended by it or upset by it or made anxious by it. It turns out for something so polarizing that I ended up feeling right down the middle about it. <laughs> Interesting. I th- yeah, I think I think part of that is Jennifer Lawrence's character. And, I, and I'm not going to bash any of the performances in this movie. You've got some great actors in here doing what they can with what they've got. 
Um, I think Jennifer Lawrence gives a, it gives a good performance, but I just think her character, I, I can't tell you her personality um, asking people to get off her sink. Like that's kind of the most <laughs> asking Stevie from, Sh- from Shit's yeah, Creek to get off. Yeah, her Stevie sink. Stevie's in this movie, which, which yeah. caught me off guard. And she makes eyes at Javier Bardem, but there's really like nothing to her. And she's supposed to be mother nature. Like we're, I'm not going to tiptoe around any of the, the metaphors because they're sloppy and often right in your face. The movie is very clearly an allegory and we're going to dig deep into that. I'm sure but there's just, there's nothing to her character that I like really, I mean, aside from being like, yeah, people get off her sink. It's not reinforced. Come on. <laughs> uh, like, I, I can't tell you anything about her. They don't paint right. her as a motherly loving character. She is someone who's just constantly like, hey, stop doing that. Stop doing that. No, don't, please leave. Right. We don't get a feel for yeah. background to any of these characters. They they come into being with the beginning of the film and there's not really an arc, you know, mother, the character of mother is just calm. She tries to be calm all the time. She's trying to be helpful to him played by Javier Bardem. I'll probably use the actor's names a lot. Otherwise it gets very confusing, yeah. with, you know, just the pronouns and yeah. I mean, for a reason, I think because it's an allegory and they're standing in for these huge concepts. And how do you personalize that? How do you make these concepts into people? How do you make Mother Nature into people unless you're like a series of 1970s TV ads? (laughs) So, Sure. (sighs) No, you're you're absolutely right. And and I I think that's really the reason you know similar to cole it rings very hollow for me is because i don't know why she she cares so much about this relationship that they awkwardly mention age gap several times in throughout yeah. her. i don't know why she cares that this is his house right and like i get it it's god's house like yay but like i hate this movie <laughs> but like, but like we're not given any context as to why she feels this strong need to rebuild this home that he seemingly doesn't care about more of a god allegory there but it's just i don't understand why this like david said earlier didn't get further passes in the script because uh, again similar to cole I, I think about movies that make me uncomfortable that have a point and like my, my favorite example is do the right thing i think do the right thing is a really uncomfortable movie to watch i think it's designed to make you feel like the summer heat is is looming over you and getting hotter and stronger and all the characters getting angrier because of it. But it's so well written that you understand where Spike is at and you understand where Sal is at. I'm blanking on Spike's character's name. And you have all these things that make it a really cohesive script that this is totally missing. Let's talk a little bit about (laughs) the central metaphor of this movie. Uh, Nicole noted in our docket that it does become very clear early on, especially if you're familiar with, with the Old Testament, or uh, if you grew up, you know, in a Christian household, went to church, anything like that, you probably notice a lot of the hallmarks of this story. But then it has the addition of the ecological elements. It kind of shoehorns in Mother Nature and humans coming in and mucking everything up. Does that muddle the story here? Does that muddle the metaphor, the original metaphor? There's two metaphors at play here. There is the Bible stuff, which really honestly feels like someone described Bible stories to Darren Aronofsky and he wrote them based off that. 
And then there is also the artist and muse thing that's going on throughout this whole story because they, you know, they're always being like, Oh, you're the muse. You're the one who inspired all of this. There's like two metaphors at play here that sometimes come into conflict of it's a Bible story, but it's also like creators uh, are in ways God. I just, I bummed myself out. (laughs) I mean, having, having seen Noah, I can confirm that Darren Aronofsky has not read the Bible because Noah, <laughs> woof. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Cole. I was just going to say, I'm glad that David brought that up because actually, to me, that second metaphor is basically don't date a writer, especially <laughs> if it's there and you're not. <laughs> True. J-Law learned. I don't think they lasted long. Uh, yeah, it's-, it's an emotionally abusive relationship, mm-hmm. whoever these two characters are. Oh, yeah. This mm-hmm. is the person with more power is narcissistic and does not care for the needs of his partner or helpmeet or muse and is just concerned with how her actions and her attempts to motivate him, how these things affect him and his work, more importantly, the work, you know, capital W Uh and it's upsetting to watch just from that point of view, to see her trying to draw boundaries and him ignoring them every time and just rolling right over her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, God's a narcissist. What an original take, Darren Aronofsky. I'm- <laughs> Darren's working some stuff out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like he's playing with all these ideas of... You know, you have man and woman show up. You have, was it Michelle Pfeiffer and Ed, Ed, Ed Harris? Harris. Mm-hmm. Like both of them show up as man and woman and, and man and woman taint, you know, what is, I, you know, Dave, David, you even put in our docket, is a house the earth or Eden? It seems like he couldn't make his mind up on that. I think it switches halfway through the movie, but in the beginning, I think it's definitely Eden, <laughs> like man and women show up and, and they cause issues. And then their descendants come along and cause issues. And I told um, Nicole and David in our Slack earlier that once the Cain and Abel thing happens, this movie completely loses me because it's so incredibly untactful (laughs) in the way it's executed. And it's so, so bad. I just, I cannot stand the Cain and Abel thing and I should love it. I love Donald Gleason, but my goodness, it's, it's doing Cain and Abel and Jacob and Esau at the same time. Right. But uh, the metaphor, I got to talk about, because the, the Ed Harris thing, like I'd known Ed Harris comes in as Adam. So I expected he was going to be like, this is like Javier Bardem was going to be like, this is my new friend. But he's like, this is the doctor from the hospital. I, I was so confused by them trying to make this a modern day setting. Characters have cell phones. He's a doctor at the hospital. He's coming from somewhere else. I was like, what are you doing? If he's supposed to be Adam, why is he originating from somewhere else, has his whole other life, and then is coming here? But that doesn't that, that confused me so much. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I don't think Aronofsky did either. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it's probably the right answer. Before we get too far away from Rhett's original question, there being this muddle of two different and now since David brought it up, three different metaphors that are going on here. The problem is, and I think you've kind of all hinted at this so far, is that it's not that there are multiple metaphors happening, is that every metaphor is so 
ham-handed mm-hmm. and clumsily handled and telegraphed and basically around the philosophical equivalent of us sitting around together in our freshman dorm lounge at 3 a.m. talking about these things. Yeah. That's where it strikes me. I love other filmmakers that are provocative and deal with these things. I see in this even, I see little flashes of Lars von Trier, Gaspar Noé, mm-hmm. filmmakers that I like a lot better than Darren Aronofsky that <laughs> are particularly always trying to provoke. And I respond to that in a much stronger way than I do this in this film, because this feels so undercooked and too on the nose. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And, and because you, you've led me into it so beautifully, I'm going to go ahead and stir the pot with subjective art opinion. Now (laughs) it's good of a time as any, uh, and Nicole can go ahead and tell me uh, that this isn't true. I don't think Aronofsky's ever made a good movie. And I'm going to stand by that because Noah is trash. The Fountain is trash. Requiem for a Dream is generic art school trash that happens when art school students learn about drugs and want to make a movie about them. His movies, to me, perpetuate the average moviegoer's hesitancy of unconventional or quote-unquote artsy film. It's the kind of stuff that's so pretentious and thinks it's so smart when it usually isn't that it just results in people disliking those types of movies. And I really, really, really do not like that about him. Nicole, do you want to you go first? <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I guess Black Swan's okay. That's what I put in our docket. Black Swan, I think, is excellent. Yes, I know. I kid. Noah, I actually saw in the theater with two very annoying elderly ladies who were just repeating everything that they saw on screen to one another in normal speaking volume. But there's at least a brilliant bit in Noah where I believe it's like the history of man done in this odd little animation style that's sort of chucked into the middle of the movie. And it was beautiful and stunning and like, two minutes long and over much too quickly. And then we go back to Russell Crowe, like naked drunk on a rock rock with the rock people. The rock people I thought were interesting, actually. That's something from Jewish theology that I am fuzzy on. It's not in Christianity, so I'm not Mm -hmm. as clear on it. Um, Yeah. yeah. But I thought that was at least, I'm just like, what are those? Are those like angels? Those are cool. Yeah, but uh, the fountain. No, I, I'm being provocative to be provocative. Yeah. I know that he's made okay stuff. Like I, I, I just, I understand where you're coming from. For me, the fountain is like pre Noah, pre mother. Look what I can do when I've read the Bible type writing to me. But that I had a real emotional connection to. Okay, that's you fair. Know, the fountain with the performances of Hugh Jackman and Rachel Weisz. Mm-hmm. I really felt. They had an emotional bond, and I felt emotionally close to them, and these wrenching things happened during the film, and I was affected by it. I think it's a, it is at the very least a very effective movie for some people. I'm not going to say it's for everyone. It's definitely not for everyone, but it's also very beautiful, and it's where I first yeah. said, who is that musician he's working with for the score, and started digging into the work right. of Clint Mansell and is my life ever better for it. But yeah, I, I wouldn't say he's never made a good film. I think it's just, they're not as, they're not as stunning as I think he would like them to be. 
Yeah, visually. Yeah, I, I'm being difficult to be funny. I just, I'm, I think my my larger concern is that I do feel that, especially with Mother, and I see it in other films of his as well, that this is the kind of thing that invites you to the movie theater with a trailer that's not like what the movie is, and then leaves you feeling bad because you don't think you understand it, but everyone else understands it. But some people think it's really obvious, and other people don't think it's really obvious, and it's all dumb. And and. <laughs> Like, and that bothers me because I don't want movies to feel exclusionary. And this, the way he writes sometimes feels that way to me because he thinks he's so smart. See, and I got to push back on Requiem for a Dream for being an opposite of that. It's one of the movies, like it has, this movie ultimately has no point. It has no central story. It's trying, I mean, it has a central story. It has no message it's trying to get across. It's a retelling. Yeah. Well, Requiem for a Dream has a very clear point and i think no it does some right. phenomenal acting and is like a is a competently made film it's not a movie that i want to watch again because it makes you feel uncomfortable on purpose and does a great job it's i don't want to yeah. watch it again because it was well made and it's it's very effective in that and we can argue the nitty-gritty of it but it's an effective film and and i think people like if, if you're a, a movie lover it's a movie is worth seeing no, that is fair. Cole, what's your favorite Darren Aronofsky film? <laughs> My favorite is actually The Wrestler. That movie I love. And I, I haven't seen The Wrestler, yes. So that where I don't it know. Succeeds, and where I think you might enjoy it versus some of these other things, it is very definitely a small-scale story, interpersonal relationships. It has nothing to do with grander messages or a huge allegory. It's just a small story, very well told. And I also want to chime in on Requiem for a Dream. I like that one an awful lot, too. Ellen Burstyn just knocks it out of the park in that thing. And I think, like David said, it's perfect for the message it's trying to convey. This struggle with addiction and how anything can be an addiction and how frazzled and undone you are by all of that stuff. That movie feels like that. So I think it achieves technically exactly what it's trying to do with its message as well. And then Third runner-up for me, it might be Pi. I actually like that, but it definitely feels like a student film, a first film. But I like the things I see him trying to work out and get on screen as basically a student. Hmm. All right, you guys are nicer than me. Look, I'm not going to defend him as not being pretentious. I'll check out The Wrestler. (laughs) He absolutely is pretentious. No, 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 I... I'm purposely being antagonistic about his filmography. No, I hear where you guys are coming from, and you guys make some great points. Um, Do we have to? Moving back to Mother, <laughs> though, I will I will not send us down that rabbit hole. Uh, Nicole put, what is the bloody hole in the floor? Yeah, so this is where ostensibly what Abel falls and dies on this hole, and now this, at least my interpretation of it, is that this sin of this original sin of blood being spilled by, you know, in the household, but man on man blood is now irreversible and this stain cannot be washed away. I mean, sure. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I, I guess. <laughs> I could I, go with that. I was like, is it supposed to be the Grand Canyon? Because like, there's a point where like, there's a point people are like <laughs> posing with it and they're like, take my picture. And I'm like, I, I don't. <laughs> that was weird, right? Like almost like it's like lionized within whatever he wrote. Also, yeah. I want to I want to read the room on this one a little. How do we feel about the native comment, like weird commentary about the the Native American guy who was like pulling off a baseboard in the house, and she's like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "I'm leaving my mark." And I'm like, "Okay, that's a proof weird, that we were here." Proof that we were here, and I was like, 
I mean, if he was like painting the walls, I feel like that would be a more apt metaphor than like I'm breaking up part of the house. I don't know. I took that as like proof that we are here as in like everyone's messing everything up in the house. Sure. And the proof that we are here is like man destroying the environment. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was just the fact that it was a an indigenous actor made me go like, yeah. I don't I don't know. What where's where are we trying to go now, Darren? <laughs> where else is this ride gonna take me? I think there may be some validity to the idea that they're physically taking back a part of something, mm. reclaiming a thing. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. And I was going to say this before David <laughs> made his Grand Canyon comment, but the whole, I feel a little weird about it now, but the stain in the floor, man on man, blood spilled, original sin, for all of that masculine energy that went into it, it's awfully vaginal a lot of the time, mm. it seems Well, like. yes, that's true. <laughs> that's, you yeah. It's right very there. Georgia O'Keefe. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> it's a flower. Right. Uh, no, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I, I don't know where to read some of the stuff in this movie. I mean, that is the spot where the, what, the sun number one falls, right? Yeah, but I mean, that seemed okay. like the obvious thing to me because of the hole's appearance and color. And But, but what... What's the point of it being in the floor? What's it, you know, what's... That's why I thought Grand Canyon. Yeah, I mean, it seems just like a really strange, a strange place to put your vaginal symbology. (laughs) The wood floor, you know? It does eventually become a portal, though, in essence. So there is that. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff that, to me, feels pretty misogynistic coming from Darren Aronofsky. Oh, I mean, you could say yes. it's place in the floor could be that, okay, we're all just going to tread on it because who cares? And it's original sin because that's what the woman has introduced to the world. Ease <sighs> curiosity, all of that. There's so much wrapped up in that, that I don't think we have time to unpack here in this short time we have together. But yes, I think it is very specifically at least partially tied to all of those ideas about women and how they are the source of original sin. Yeah, I can, I can see that, that working there. The, the original sin thing, the, there's all this buildup to it there. It, you have the Ed Harris character wanting to touch the the crystal. And then you have Michelle, he's showing it to Michelle Pfeiffer later and it, and it breaks. Um, so I guess he's like the snake, which I guess we can get into phallic metaphors there if we want. Sure. Why not? But then, so like the idea from a biblical perspective is like that happened. They break the crystal, the knowledge of good and evil, which that even apparently wasn't a thing for them. I, I'm just getting so angry at how loose the metaphor was right now <laughs> at times. No, no, they totally are because, you know, there is this part in the Bible that like once man rejects God by sinning, there's kind of this like wall that comes down that like never truly ever gets lifted again, except for that Jesus dude. Um, we can get into the Jesus stuff a little later if you guys want, but like, there is like kind of this wall like God's essentially separating himself more from his creation. Um, But that's not what's happening here. No, no, but like that's what he tries to show you. And he's like, he's boarding it up and says, they'll never get in here again. And he's literally boarding up his office. It's it's all a stretch. It's all a stretch. So, so they introduce like this original sin has happened. The first like bad thing has happened, even though Ed Harris is smoking and I, you know, just whatever. (laughs) Uh, But then like, there's no, that's not shown to then be the impetus of like all the people that show up, they're bad because this thing happened. And that's why when this metaphor gets so loose, 
it's just it's so sloppy. And I think that's just what I have to keep coming back to is the word sloppy when it's when it comes to all the the biblical stuff. Is it's uh... Do you want to talk about the sloppy Jesus metaphor? It's all wrong, David. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, before we get there, I'm just sort of wondering, like, where did where did all these other people come from? If this is the metaphor he's working from, it's such a mess. All these people come out of nowhere. And I mean, that's, I guess you could say that's where it sort of jumps back over to the environmental metaphor where mankind is overpopulating and just invading places where it was never meant to be just because we want the room and the resources. But, ah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I see why you get angry at it because <laughs> it's sort oh, of yeah. convenient. It, it does it just out of convenience. It, yeah. There aren't smooth transitions between one metaphor and another. Right. And, and it gets even weirder where there are several lines in the movie where I just want to smack him upside the head <laughs> because, that you know, like, like, like when everyone's coming into the house physically stealing her dinner being like he said we should share and, <laughs> like, and she's oh my god she says i'll go prepare for the apocalypse at one point right no i'll <laughs> go start the apocalypse yes that's when it. she's going to clean up the mess and i'm just like oh yeah. wow that's <laughs> obvious okay yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah all right i gotta talk about because the jesus metaphor <sighs> <sighs> okay upsetting so mother well oh yes the end of it is very upsetting but mother is not human that's like a step she's mother nature she's separate from the human beings that are coming into the house like that seems clear to me and yet she is the one who she yells at javier bardem until she until he has sex with her and then she's immediately pregnant whatever not don't care about that but it doesn't work because Jesus is the son of man. That is like kind of his whole shtick that he was born of human and then like grew up and lived as a man. And they are saying like, well, she's pregnant and this is Jesus. And it's coming from the supernatural place where I felt like if you want to do the metaphor, have it that Javier Bardem makes a phone call to some woman. And then she shows up and is like, I'm having your child. And he's like, but I never had sex with her. Like that would have had the (laughs) metaphor working where this doesn't at all. It doesn't fit the meta. And then she's like, oh, you're never going to see your child. It's like, hey, but but that's not human because humans already live out there. So th- just what is happening? And then <laughs> again, my, my reaction to this movie is just anytime Jennifer Lawrence was screaming in the film. So the last half of the movie, but then it gets even more upsetting when he does get the baby and hands it to the people and they kill and eat the baby. And I know what they're doing. But again, that doesn't work because Jesus didn't die as a child for the sins of humanity. He died as a full-grown man. It would have made more right, sense. And made the choice. Yes. Would have made more sense for him to like go, like the baby to go in the other room and then walk out like two seconds later being like, hello, mom. I'm, I'm 33 now. I'm going to go get eaten by these people. <laughs> oh, God. All of a sudden, a stranger uh, in a strange land. <laughs> yeah. I just, uh, and I'm getting angry. <laughs> I'm getting angry. I just stopped talking. I'm getting physically. I mean, I'm this hot. was where this is where the movie was most successful in emotionally connecting for me. But I think that that might just be because I am a mother. I have had two pregnancies and two children, and so I've given birth, and I'm you know I've been there in that extremely emotional space and vulnerable place you're in right after you've given birth 
and the incredible, you know, because of oxytocin and brain chemicals and because it's your kid, you know, you get this tremendous rush of oxytocin and this bonding feeling and you immediately feel like you will do anything for this infant. You will die, you will kill, you will do whatever for this baby. And I understand that ferocious protectiveness that she has and sure. the, how she immediately loves it more than anything in the world. And I get that. So when he takes that baby from her, it's just, oh, it's so, <laughs> it's in, infuriating and distressing. Yeah. And that whole sequence is distressing for because yeah. it is it's it's it, it super is. effective it's, it's incredibly yeah. effective and horrible and one of the most horrible pieces of sound design ever oh, in a film yeah and I didn't, I didn't, oh <laughs> i didn't need to hear this the snap oh yeah i think the problem is that it's, it's just it's mean-spirited and i know that was something that that was a critique of the film when it came out is that without closing the loops on some of these metaphors more strongly the last 20 minutes just feels mean for no reason it's just it, it's incredibly mean-spirited and it's testing how far he can push the audience into looking at horrific things without any payoff for doing so and and any 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 overarching understanding for for having taken that journey you don't get any of those payoffs. You just see a baby get brutally killed and then eaten. It's just mean. The carcass was too much. Yeah. And then they just beat her up on the floor while screaming the C word. Like it is just, it's a horrific ending to the movie. Yeah. I think I feel I'm at the exact opposite end of the spectrum from Nicole, because obviously I don't have the experience that she's had with this. When I watch that, I am not responding to very much at all, specifically because I feel like he's trying to make me respond. And so mm. I am responding as a contrarian to his contrarianism. I just feel like you're not going to make me care about this just because you're trying to specifically push these buttons. It feels so clumsy and so, like I said before, on the nose. I am specifically fighting the instinct to feel anything just because I know that's what he's trying to get out of us. And so I push back against that so hard. Also, also, I've calmed down enough to get worked up about this again. It, <laughs> the, the, the timing of it d doesn't work either because it's it's accelerated to modern day, and she sees all these horrible like modern day. And not to say that like back in olden times things were perfect, like things were bad things were happening then too. Trust me, I'm becoming a history teacher. Bad things have been happening for all of human history, uh, <laughs> but the the things they're showing are very clearly like these are modern day things, and yet she's having like. She's having the baby now. But also, if that's the route you're going to go, where like the baby is Jesus, have everybody be outside the house. And then she gives birth, and then the child's given over to the crowd, and now like the people can come inside because like af after like the the death of Jesus was to bring humanity back to God without all of the ceremony of Jewish tradition. Um, like there was the tearing of the curtain at the time of Jesus's death, according to the Bible. Uh, there's also, forgot about this part. I'm going to another part of this that, that drives me mad if this is supposed to be Jesus. It's, we're supposed to draw a clear line from Adam to Jesus. That is like the beginning of the book of Matthew is the genealogy of Jesus. And yet again, man is not part. I, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I can't. David has left the room. <laughs> I just have to say for 
our oh. audience that I have never seen David gesticulate quite so emphatically. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not like upset from any like from like a Christian perspective. I'm upset from like a film viewer perspective who has a large Christian background due to my upbringing. Do you hate this more than cats? Uh, that's it's yeah, that's different. Those are, those are apples and oranges. <laughs> it's a different kind of hate. Yeah. It's a different kind of hate. No, you know, I I hear where you're coming from on that. Um, talking about about some of these other you know biblical allegories. Why does him laugh a little as he sets the crystal on the stand at the end? Uh, Nicole, you also further said, is he insane as the mother accuses him of being? He does the same thing over and over, each time hoping for a different result. You know, so for for the audience, if, if for some reason you're listening to this and haven't seen the movie, this origin story of this crystal that he keeps in his den is because it came from the ashes of him losing everything. And we later learn that him losing everything is is losing the house and losing mother and, and everyone in it and, and his child. And then that crystal comes out of it, which at that point he can put the little crystal on the pedestal and restart the whole shebang. Well, the crystal comes out of her. Out of her. It's right. her heart. He pulls um, her heart out. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's the Kalima scene. I forgot about that. <laughs> he pulls her heart out. Yeah, yeah. And then that's the crystal. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, there is that whole, like, and, and maybe David can speak to it better than I can, because I, I think David knows so much more about this than I do. But, like, there is that whole, like, theological argument of, like, you never know how many tries God is on, right? Like, is this the fifth? Is this the 500th time that God has gone through the ringer with Jesus? And we're, we, you know, this happens to be this version of that earth. And I don't know if they're playing with that. Like, is, is it just like God in all of his ability to create also has the ability to destroy everything and start fresh without any consequences? I don't know, man. Is that what they're playing with? I don't know. I thought they were playing with deism a little bit, but Javier Bardem yeah, doesn't yeah. leave. So interesting. Yeah, I, I, I can't anymore. I can't. I got it. <laughs> well, I, I just see a drink like up here. Did you have wine at the beginning? This, this is water. Like this is manifest. water. Oh, okay. If we could just back up a little bit. I'm in agreement that the ending just gets mean. You know, after she gets to the altar and finds the remains of her baby, oh. and she finally strikes out again. Uh, she she finally strikes out violently against mm-hmm. the people. And in return, you know, they knock her down and they beat her and they kick her and they call her all these very specifically misogynistic gendered slurs and taunts and insults that are very specific to women. And I'm sitting there going, what is the point of that? Is he trying at like the 11th hour to bring in wow, mankind's been horrible to women, hasn't it? You know, or is this, uh, I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> I, I had the unfortunate reality of watching this with subtitles. I do that on our show now. Just, it helps me really dive in. And that means I got to learn all of the names, quote unquote, that he puts upon these characters because every single one of them has a dumb name. It's not just him and her and mother and, Adam and Eve or whatever. There's like the whoremonger. And that's like the guy that's like yelling at her halfway through the movie and telling her what to do. And it, that's all I wanted to say is that, that that exists in this as well. So like he's thinking about that from the mindset of how he is casting these characters as well. I think, and I'm not sure about this, but if it does turn out that eventually we discover that Aronofsky is a creep 
to the degree, uh, you know, in that Weinstein Cosby scale of things that we're going to look back at this as, oh, exhibit A, we should have known mm. all along. I don't know that he's a terrible person. I don't know anything about his personal relationships except except what you see in relation to the movies he's made. He was with Rachel Weisz when they made that film, with Jennifer Lawrence when they made this film. It's an odd cycle to keep mm-hmm. going through that over and over again. So it makes me wonder what his motivations are with some of this stuff and how his personal life ties directly to this art. But it's a mess. You're right. Everybody's right when they say that it's a mess. The metaphor is just bungled all the way through that we were just talking about how mean spirited it is in the end. And David was talking about the division between old Testament and new Testament wrath is supposed to be done with the epilogue is not supposed to be wrath. It's supposed to be the opposite of that because of the sacrifice that was made. And yet it gets right. so much worse. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and when she burns the house down, I'm like, you go, you burn it. You burn it to the oh, ground. Yeah. <laughs> Her just knifing everyone toward the end. At least there's a little bit of redemption. Slightly cathartic. Before she gets kicked and beaten around. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also, I felt so bad for Jennifer Lawrence in that scene, too, because, like, her boobs are out in that scene. And I'm just like, oh, no. Like, we didn't have to. There was no real point in that. You mean there wasn't enough artistic merit for them to be, <laughs> for her to, to bear herself? It's- <laughs> No, and then like they're like, while. No, it wasn't. <sighs> There's a lot of gratuitous shots of her boobs in this movie, though. Just true. throwing that out there. Like, there's more than one. I mean, I think, I think, uh, I think that uh, that we're onto something here. Yeah, I feel bad for her just because it's it had to have been exhausting for her. She is on screen every minute. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. there are a couple of cuts where she'll go out of frame, but it's only for a second. And that's when there are time jumps. Um, mm-hmm. But outside of that, we are with her. We're either over her shoulder or right in her face or right next to her. She is always on the screen. Yeah, and that's got to be every day of shooting. It's got to be absolutely exhausting. And it's actually one of the things that I like about the film in the third act, how technically it's really an achievement with all of this movement around and through the set and the sound design and all of that. And it's, like Nicole is saying, it's a very physical performance for her, especially when you get to this section. And that's actually the thing that I think is the most well-realized of all of it. It's just the technical proficiency of how all of those things happen once that siege begins. Yeah. Oh, this is a right. well-made movie from, a, from a, a, a filmmaking standpoint. Darren Aronofsky is competent behind a camera. I'm not going to refute that. It's behind a typewriter that wrote <laughs> <laughs> no he's the kind of guy that wrote this on a typewriter that he bought at urban outfitters yeah it may not quite be it, but it, it feels like one unbroken shot where she's going from room to room and going upstairs and downstairs and wherever she's moving things are ramping up everywhere she goes you know, we'll talk about Chris and Wig gang like gang executing people because that was an <laughs> unexpected turn. Oh, yeah. I just put Chris and Wig in our docket because she shows up perfectly, plays her role as the you know the publicist of of him, and and then it just like turns to a shot where she's just shooting people for no reason. It's it's bonkers, it's absolutely bonkers. It's Honestly, I think that it? made me fall more in love with her. 
<laughs> oh, she's the best. She's the best part of this movie. Six more, uh, and then maybe we can get out of this movie. <laughs> right, right. But one thing I noticed in that scene is that as she's running between the stuff, and, and I actually like this part of the movie, is that there's so much chaos and there's so much intensity that it seems like every single time she goes to a different room, the chaos is entirely different and self-insulated to that room. Like there are rooms where she runs in and it looks like refugees post-war zone bringing each other food. And then there's rooms she walks in where they're having like cult rituals with with candles and, and masks. And then there's rooms where there's SWAT teams barging down the doors and it jumps between almost like contemporary and this, you know, dark ritualistic style from room to room in a way that I, I at least in capturing that chaos and that intensity and all this religious intensity happening, I beat the one guy's literally called the zealot. It's really good in that regard. It's very interesting to watch. I'll give it that. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, he's excellent as zealot. That's a uh, Stephen McCaddy of, uh, if yeah, you right. haven't seen it, everybody go see Pontypool right now. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> and I did kind of like the, uh, the messaging that's slightly less beat you over the head with it, that like every room she's going into, there's a new interpretation of how people are either worshiping God or defending God or trying to push God onto other people or what they're doing in the name of God. You know, it's basically saying in every way, mankind is screwing this up in a different way, depending on where you go and when you are in history, but we're always getting it wrong. At least that's the feeling I got. Mm-hmm. And and him in particular has this, this egotistical streak of thinking he has it under control and thinking he understands what's happening because there are too many times in this movie where he's like, they just came to hang out and be buds. <laughs> no, no, they didn't. And that it devolves quickly. Like he, he loses his control over the situation as it gets increasingly more drastic. I don't know if he's trying to make a, a point there about religion, but, but it's certainly what happens in the movie. It, I mean, and I, I, I joked earlier about like, Oh, Aronofsky, like real sharp commentary there of, of God's a narcissist. But honestly, it does kind of feel like the Reddit R atheism take of like, ah, oh, God, God <laughs> yeah. doesn't care about you. And like, there, there is just some of like edge Lord feeling of the way that the character <laughs> of him is written. Oh my God. I would actually adjust that just slightly. I think he does care. I think he cares specifically how much oh. you adore him and that's all. That, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. The, the narcissism angle yeah. of it. But he absolutely yeah. cares about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm an agnostic atheist. You know, I don't believe in God, but I don't care if you do. If that brings you comfort, that's great. But I'm not going to be able to discuss it with you because of how I feel about those beliefs and why I think mankind has them. Um, well, where's I going with this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the narcissistic God. Yeah, I mean, that's not the first time I've come across it because, I mean, there's there are bits in the Bible where it's – that's one of the rules is that you worship this God and you don't worship any other gods but this one and, or and, you're in big trouble. And, and I don't want to make it seem too like I'm – you know, people who hold the belief if you – 
if you are uh, somebody who has like real angry feelings towards Christian God or towards religion, like, you know, I'm not going to sit here and, and tell you not to, you know, absolutely. We're all going through our own journeys, spiritual and otherwise. Um, it's just, again, I'm going back to that word sloppy. <laughs> when it comes to this movie, I just feel like it's not well handled. Well, and then he, and then it could have been a well done, well written character if it was, but it's not. <laughs> I think it speaks to, to Cole's point earlier about, you know, this wrath versus redemption of the, the split in the Bible, right? Like Old Testament God is like, I'm going to hit you with lightning. And then New Testament God doesn't hit you with as much lightning. Like Jesus <laughs> kind of softened him up, at least in the writing. So like, uh, <laughs> there's a little bit less of that. And there's also like a bit, like he does show compassion at some point when he's, uh, after Cain kills Abel, and then there's like the funeral that's going on, and Michelle Pfeiffer is just uh, is throwing some real shade at at Jennifer Lawrence, which I don't understand why. Yeah. But um, he's like, well, you know, they lost two sons today because there's still one out there in the wilderness. And it's like that's a very like touching, astute moment that's just very inconsistent with the rest of the film. <laughs> Though it's preceded by this, this oh my god, this this point in the movie which is clearly the impetus for what he writes and maybe even exactly what he writes because they repeat it later on where he's talking all about how now that we have lost somebody through our cries we feel their love for they are with us and it is so so bad it's that is the point where it's just him writing that and him putting down the pencil slash keyboard and being like damn i'm good and it's not and it's not and he runs with it. And I assume that's like more or less what he ends up writing because later on they actually kind of chant that after they kill the baby. Um, I hate to say it, guys. Um, let's, let's, as we start to wrap down here, we, we, uh, well, actually, first of all, we never really answered our direct discussion topic. You know, why does he laugh a little bit? We did mention like, you know, it might be what he is perceiving as the, the egotisticalness of God, perhaps. But the is he in, is he insane? Like Mother says, is he doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result? I come from a, I think a similar philosophical place as Nicole, as far as the agnostic atheist part of things, and I see that. Actually, I go even farther back in the question, with the question starting at the very beginning. If you are omnipotent, then why do you need to create anything? Why does any of this have to happen? I think, which is a question that Aronofsky might have asked himself. Because he creates. Creation is what he does. Is what he says in the movie, anyway. Right. The uh, but the the way that that applies to what we see here with the implied loop, mm-hmm. the way we go back to the beginning of basically the choose your own adventure, start all over again <laughs> aspect of that. It's. Uh, that may be the most distressing part of the whole thing for me. Mm. Brett mentioned the whole, the part of, you know, are we on the first try, the fifth try, the 500th try? I do think with my personal inclinations that maybe he is a little nuts. Maybe he is driven by something that's much more human and mortal than anything to do with being a deity. You know, we've seen this all along in humanity stories about their gods, whether it's, Romans, Greeks, etc. They're all so fallible. With this one exception, the thing that Nicole pointed out before about you only worship this God. 
There are no gods above this God. There are no gods other than this God, period, unless you want to really be in trouble. It makes it so different versus uh, so much of the rest of world religious history. There's so much tied up in that that makes me just doubt and fear. And I mean, if this is the guy that's in charge, he's a loose cannon, basically. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I think that... I. I, I almost feel that like we're getting into the depths of discussion purely because we were and we would inevitably get to a meaningful discussion <laughs> just because we talk long enough, um, not because this movie stirs that discussion. <laughs> um, that's a great point, though, and and I think that is a, a terrifying concept leaving this movie. And and you know, at Nicole, as you pointed out in our docket, like he does, he laughs a little bit. He's like, "Oops, I get to do it again." Um, at the very well, end. maybe it's and, the. And that's, Maybe it's like the whole like, you know, it's the mother that walks in after the mess has been made, and it's just like I just clean it. I'm like, okay, I gotta, also, I gotta like, do this again. Talking, <laughs> what is the point of there being a different mother at the end if he's restarting everything? Why can't it be J Law again? Well, there's a different woman in the first part too, the yeah. burning in the fire woman. Is there? Yeah, yeah. The, the 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 opening shot of the movie is a woman standing in fire that's mirrored later with with uh, J Law, and it's oh. a different woman. Why? I don't want to keep hammering that Aronofsky's <laughs> a creep thing, but I think that may have more to do with him <laughs> than any part of this story. Burn it down, start over with another one. You know, I will say I I, I have no I have no knowledge of whether or not Darren Aronofsky is a creep, but having now looked at his personal life on Wikipedia, I will say it's a total bummer for your wife to leave you and six months later marry James Bond. That's gotta that's gotta sting. <laughs> well, so if you just throwing that out there, I mean, if your wife's gonna leave you for somebody, right? It might as well be James Bond. It's gonna be literal James Bond. Then you can look over and be like, oh, well, okay, I get it. That's okay. I don't who she's still with. I, so I just don't trust anybody that wears that many scarves. <laughs> Those kind of mustaches, mustaches, yeah, mustache. I don't know. Yeah, okay. Um, why is this restored house so drab? We'll, we'll end on that. On that. <laughs> Much less important. On my ridiculous question. <laughs> yeah, much less important inquiry. The most important question that we've got, we have yet to get to. <laughs> why does it look like Martha Stewart hasn't gotten to decorating this one yet? You know, why? Right. Where is the ship? And left? she's mixing the paints and she's like, oh, this would be good. Like vomit, diarrhea color. This will really lighten the room. It's such a drab, weird house that, to your point earlier, David, like, the movie wants to be contemporary where there are phones and there are modern amenities, but at the same time it basks in the, the drabness and outdatedness of this house by like having the landline phone that is a main character for three forces movie for some reason. Like it, it, it everybody loves, needs that phone. Everybody needs it. Everyone needs the phone, right? There's the, there's the old rickety washer and dryer and like everything's falling apart. Like it is a, I don't know what the if there's a reason for him doing it that way, but yeah, it's very drab. You're right, Nicole. I don't know if it's to make certain things pop. You know, this is a huge Victorian house where she's remodeling it, and the the wood has all been the paint has been sanded off the wood, but it hasn't been refinished yet, and the walls are all ecru or primer color, and the, she's got this old. Uh, farmer sink in the kitchen that's gray and she's got gray linens, dark gray linens to put on the guest bed and it's there's these little bits of color, you know, there's the blood on the floor 
And there's this yellow powder that she occasionally drinks. And I've got no idea what that's supposed to be. No one does. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she fl- she flushes it at one point as if it's a crutch she no longer needs, but well, also there's once no character she's development to tell you that. Oh, okay. Once she's pregnant, sure. she flushes it. But sure. she, and she doesn't feel the pain that requires this medicine until man shows up, until Adam shows up. Before that, she's perfectly fine. So, but it's, so her, you know, her powder is this vivid yellow color. But mm. why? It, and it's green outside the house. There's this beautiful meadow and trees around the house, right. and it looks like the only house in the world. But it, I don't understand why, if this is Eden or if this is the beginning, why is it? Yes. So colorless. Yes. Why is it so lifeless in and of itself? It should, it should theoretically. And then like the, the only, the only little metaphor that worked is her coming downstairs and someone else painting the house. And he, and she's like, what are you doing? And like, okay, like that part works in the sense of like, we reshape nature more so than like stealing and the breaking stuff like that part I got. So, Hey, Aronofsky in a two hour film, you did good for 30 seconds. I'll give you, I'll give you those Man. 30 seconds. And he's also very careful not to... And again, this this adds to your confusion about the cell phones and stuff, David. He's, he's very careful not to show you external forces that he doesn't want you to see. You never see a car, right? Like the cops come and bring him home from the hospital and he's covered in blood after one of the sons dies. But you don't hear a, a car. He just shows up in the front door. There's he's, no road. There's like, no driveway. There's no road. Right, right. There's none of that. He, he's he's very particular about isolating this situation from everything else around it until he doesn't want to anymore at the very end. It's, I don't know, guys. So I feel, I feel it's apt that I should read this little bit here from Aronofsky himself. Because uh, he says the film uses a dream logic narrative of which Aronofsky has noted, if you try to unscrew it, it kind of falls apart. And that it's, quote, it's a psychological freakout. You shouldn't over-explain it, which uh, he should have known podcasts exist. But so that if you try to, like, he even is acknowledging, if you try to unscrew it, it kind of falls apart. He's like, eh, you know, it doesn't really hold up. I under- mean, I understand what? that, but it, it was better done in Looper, I thought. Well, yeah. Bruce Willis's character is like, you know, but we're going to sit here for hours with drinking straws and paper clips trying to figure this out, but why? Just yeah. accept it and move on. <laughs> if, if there had right. been any point, aside from him retelling the story of God or whatever, you know, God or whatever, that, that whole thing, that like if there had been some message, some kind of point to any of it, it might have clicked a little bit better. I might even, you might even be able to overlook the fact that it's all so loose. But the, right. the fact that it ends and it's just going to start again, it's like, well, then why? <laughs> why did we do this? Basically, what I take away from that second half is all of this could have been avoided if he just would have gone on a book tour (laughs) (laughs) take it on the road let mother stay home you know yeah that's the baby i um i also want to call out as i'm looking at our um imdb page for this film i noticed a couple people this time around that you know i I hadn't noticed back then people like stevie from schitt's creek because you know i've seen them and stuff now um but another one was um i believe it's hoven Adepo, who is the um, the cup bearer, uh, is his character in the movie. But that is the that was the the young man who played Corey 
in fences. So we saw a lot of him before. Uh, he's in this for a very short time, but I noticed him immediately, and and he's fantastic in fences. So we've seen him before, and, and along with a handful of others, this has a very interesting cast of people sprinkled throughout it. Yeah, that's just another frustrating waste when you have a cast that is so talented. Mm-hmm. I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer, she's so compelling to watch, even given almost nothing to do. It's just one more layer on the frustration cake. He had so many wonderful artists to work with, and then to make them all so one-dimensional drives me nuts. <laughs> Most certainly. Well, I, th- I think we can finally close here. Uh, you know, I want everyone to go around the table and kind of give their brief thoughts on Mother. Really quickly, the, the only thing I'll say on my end is that if Mother does one thing successfully, it's why I hate house guests. <laughs> and, and like, like the, the, the more misanthropic side of me, it's like, God, I hate people. It's just like... <laughs> This movie really solidifies that. And it's just all of the, and even from the very beginning where it's like, hey, we're staying uninvited because you're, or I guess invited because your better half decides to invite them without telling you. All of these little things that he does to remove any agency she has from the situation and let these people into their home is just an absolute nightmare for someone that just doesn't want anyone in their house ever. So um, I certainly am, am sympathetic to her on several fronts in that regard. I too do not want Ed Harris as a house guest, but uh, let's go around the table, see what everyone else thought of it. Uh, Cole, our wonderful guest, uh, closing thoughts on mother. Well, the first thing you make me think of with that is you just want to watch the perfect Why Are All These People Coming to My House movie. Just watch the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That works on <laughs> a lot of great metaphorical levels. Or Leatherface. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are these people doing here? But like I said earlier, I feel like I'm just right down the middle on this. I would say two and a half out of five. And the positives being the technical proficiency the one or two illuminating moments like David pointed to, there are a couple of uh, those that really shine through because everything else is so undone, but it didn't provoke me the way he wanted to. Nicole said at the beginning, maybe it's not as smart as he thinks it is. I totally agree with that. It's just uh, freshman level theology in a boring allegory because I usually, when I get ready to do these shows, I'll, start my document and I will have say a thousand words of notes to go into this. And when this was over, I realized I stopped typing a long time ago and my workshop <laughs> was basically 236. So yeah. Still more prep than two thirds of this panel. Usually <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Nicole is, is the infamous note taker. I, I think David and I can both aspire to take notes about movies as good as she does. Yeah. Not as I good mean, as she does. Yeah. I've, I've got like 1600 words, but it's pretty much just a plot synopsis <laughs> like trying to track what was going on. And, and now Kristen and, Wiig is here and now she has a guy. Right. Yeah. And it was much, much harder to keep up co- toward the end of the movie when the pace really goes, you go down over the hill of the roller coaster and, and you're in for it. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, it is, it's, <laughs> I had yeah, a couple of moments of emotional connection, but again, this is something I would say if you're if you're interested in the craft of movie making, then yes, absolutely watch this. But I don't know that it's one that I would recommend 
for any other reason. Number one, because, you know, at least for me, you know, I, I find it a very anxiety producing movie. And for others, it's, this could be, it is very effective at capturing the feel of a nightmare as well, where it's, you just keep, you keep trying to escape and you can't, you know, toward the end of the movie, she keeps trying to get out of the house and she keeps getting, either pushed away or gently steered away or the hole closes in front of her and she can't go outside and, and the people won't leave and they won't listen to her and she's in pain and no one's helping her. And so, but why would I want people to feel that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least why would I want people I'd like to feel that, you know? So why would I recommend yeah. That, that folks watch this outside of the, the technical thing. You know, it's, it's effective. It's, I'd say, like two and a half or three out of five if I were rating it. It's not trash. It's not worthless. But it's just not, <laughs> the potential was not met mm. for this film. Right. Yeah. What about you, David? Uh, I... I, I think I agree with what's been said so far. And Nicole, right there at the end, you know, you put it so the, the potential of this movie is so great and it doesn't quite get there. Um, I, I mean, I know there's people that I know that really like this movie. Hi, Phil Rude. Though Phil even recognizes, like, he, he said to me, like, I like this movie more than I feel like I should. <laughs> so there's, there's an awareness, at, at least there. But it, it's a movie that if you haven't watched it and at the end of this, you're now like so curious about it. Um, I'm surprised that I have anything else to say. Just kidding. I could go for another 45 minutes. If you are going to watch it, be aware of what it is and be aware that there is some disturbing imagery and there are some parts of it that are very hard to take. Um, even if you're coming from the the mother perspective, like Nicole is, or even if you just don't want to see a, a torn up carcass of a baby. Um, which is very difficult and I wish was not shown to me at all. It's yeah, you know, it exists. It's there. I watched it. You got me. What else you got people? What else do you want? To go for? <laughs> no, no, don't. I, I have, oh, Lord. Oh Lord. I have a question for David. Actually, I've been thinking about this, watching his response to this. Is there something of value at least? Are you okay? Well, yeah. <laughs> is everything all right? <laughs> Sorry, but go ahead. Do you need a communion wafer? <laughs> <laughs> is but is uh is there at least value to be found in something that provokes such a strong emotional response from you? Oh sure, I'm not I'm not going to be of the this film should never have been made camp. You know, let's I'm I'm of the opinion that we should make all art as long as it's like we're you know we're trying to to make art. Let's do it and let's experiment and let's see what happens. And this certainly. Per, per, sparks a lot of discussion. I think we've had a really great, really interesting discussion here tonight, but without this, I never would have watched this movie. I purposefully Mm -hmm. would have just kept going about my life, not watching this film. If someone said to me, Hey, we're going to watch mother. I'd be like, thanks. I have to go. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm in the same boat actually. And thank you for this because I actually purchased a copy. So now this sits in my library. You're you're welcome. On the shelf where it will stay forever. Probably. (laughs) Yeah, it's if if you are <laughs> if you're going to watch this movie to discuss with people, watch it with friends, then have a three hour long discussion after. Absolutely, there's absolute worth there. Sure, this is not a movie to just throw on because oh, it's raining out. Let's just snuggle under a blanket and watch <laughs> Mother. 
Well said. Well said. Uh, all right. Well, Phil, I know you're listening, Phil. We need to talk about this. All right, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to send us an email. Hi at MGRpodcast.com. You, Phil Rude. And you're going to tell us what you like about this movie. And we're going to approach it with an open mind because we love you. But we want to hear your thoughts. And you know what? Even if you're not Phil Rude and you'd like to email us, that email is open to non-Phil's as well. Um, <laughs> hi at MGRpodcast.com if you'd like to go ahead and shoot us a message either in defense or support of Mother. Um, wait, both those are the same thing. Uh, <laughs> it's been a long hour. Okay, guys. I, have, um, I am exhausted. I have to say. <laughs> I am so I'm gonna. I'm literally... I forgot to make dinner tonight. I'm literally going to go order McDonald's after this and just think about my life <laughs> because having had to watch this, I'm just so mentally exhausted. So, Cole, uh, where can people find you online? Where can they find the Magic Lantern? Where can they find more? They of can you? find us just about anywhere you get your podcasts. Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, etc. Uh, we have the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. So all the episodes, including some supplemental links to everything, are there. Just uh, Twitter, at lantern underscore cast. And on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram, just search for Magic Lantern Podcast. We're all over the place. Hey, everyone. Editor Nicole jumping in here. Just to note that because this is one of our reshuffled episodes, uh, it was recorded a little while ago. And unfortunately, in that time, the Magic Lantern podcast has ceased production of new episodes. However, their old episodes are still available on all the podcatchers of choice. I highly recommend listening to them. And their social media presence is still active. They still check that out. So go ahead and say hi. Right on. It was a pleasure having you. And it won't be the last time either. We won't wait two years this time. Good. Uh, we'll definitely have you back again soon. And with Erica. I yes. know Erica's not available right she now. She says to say hello. We'll definitely have her back. She's sorry that she couldn't do it. Oh, my gosh. Get her priorities straight. <laughs> She's getting an awesome rad degree. And she could have watched Mother. So <laughs> shame, shame. Uh, Nicole Davis, where can people find you online? Oh, I take care of our Facebook page at facebook.com slash movie go round podcast. Very good. And what about you, David? Uh, hit me one more time. It's my other podcast that I do. And then Davlas, D-A-V-L-U-Z, Twitter and Instagram. Find me there. Very good. You can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. That's Brett with two T's, Stewart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T. But that will do it for myself, David and Nicole. And Cole, we will, David and Nicole and it, sorry, I'm, it's been such a long <laughs> David Nicole. Dave, I'm going to cut this part. <laughs> no, you know what? I'll leave it in because that's what this movie has done to me. David, Nicole, and Cole. That is it for us. Reminder again next week is new to two. And we're going to be watching Upstream Color. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.